everyone. My name is Lauren Blossom. Welcome to Black Girls Research 2 podcast, where I discuss psychological research related to BIPOC mental health and well-being with special focus on Black women's experiences. I am a doctoral student in the Counseling Psychology Program at Texas Women's University. The research I'm discussing today is the completion of my thesis equivalency project alongside Dr. Marlene Williams, which studied Black women's involvement in civic engagement activities and how negative experiences within these spaces may impact their mental well-being. My interest in this topic was born out of many discussions I saw from Black women during the Black Lives Matter protests the summer of 2020 and previous years where protests were frequently occurring, related to their treatment in in these spaces and in the broader context of police and state violence. As a Black woman, I wanted to understand what factored into other Black women's involvement and civic activities, and what effect their treatment in these spaces had on their mental health. I chose to disseminate my research and results through a podcast because I felt it was important that non-academic individuals had access to these findings. Black women have historically been a marginalized group, and although policies have been adopted to open this marginalization, Black women continue to face discrimination and oppression. Surprisingly, this marginalization carries over to both historic activism efforts, such as the civil rights movement, as evidenced in Barnett, 1993, and current movements such as the Black Lives Matter movement, as evidenced in Crenshaw, 2015, and Malloy, 2015, where Black women's specific issues are pushed to the side in favor of overarching, quote-unquote, Black issues. Previous research tells us that discrimination is correlated with a myriad of negative mental health outcomes, such as psychological distress and depression, as shown in Brown et al. 2000 and Williams and Muhammad 2009, and trauma symptoms, as shown in Helms et al. 2010. Though discrimination has been associated with negative mental health outcomes, there are also connections between discrimination and civic engagement activities, Riley et al. 2020. This is further supported through research such as Oskui's 2016 study, where the researcher found that Muslim Americans who experienced discrimination at the personal level were more likely to engage in community activism efforts. But when they faced peer discrimination, participants were less likely to register to vote and to turn out for elections. This suggests that while participants may not have felt they could effectively change the system through voting, they were drawn to activities that fostered a greater sense of community. This tracks as the need to belong has been well established in studies such as Baumeister and Levy in 1995 and over in 2016. In an effort to ameliorate the negative impacts of discrimination, Black women may also choose to foster community through Black community activism efforts rather than engage in somewhat singular events such as voting. A study conducted by Leith and Chavez in 2017 also supports that Black women who are more aware of racial stigma we're more likely to be involved in civic activities. But it's important to know that this does not happen in isolation. With the help of sociopolitical development theory created by Watts and colleagues in 1999, we understand that a combination of one's experiences with discrimination, their socialization, and their self-concept influence people's willingness to become involved in civic activities. This leads us to the concept of racial identity centrality. In their 1998 study, Sellers et al. defined racial identity centrality as how salient one's race is to their overall self-concept. Current research suggests that a higher racial identity centrality is positively correlated with engagement in civic activities.
Shonen Chapman Hillard et al. 2020 and Chavez 2000. To apply these theories and concepts to Black women, we must understand a concept known as intersectionality. Kimberly Crenshaw introduced intersectionality in 1989 to describe how Black women's multiple identities intersect to create a distinct experience separate from those with a singular oppressed identity. As Black women, our experiences both mirror and differ from Black men's and white women's because we hold both the Black and woman identities. Whereas Black men may face racism and white women experience sexism, Black women encounter what Philomena Assad has termed gendered racism. The experiences of racism is further complicated because we are women, and sexism is complicated by our Blackness, and it's virtually impossible to tease out whether discriminatory experiences occur solely based on our race or gender. This also means that our self-concept is not built solely on the basis of our gender or our race. Researchers have found that experiences of gendered racism are related to increased risk of psychological, psychological distress, as found in Sismansky and Lewis in 2016, including depressive symptoms evidenced in Carr et al.'s 2014 study and Williams and Lewis's 2019 study, and traumatic stress symptoms found in Moody and Lewis's 2019 study. This research helps us to understand the nature and effects of gender racism when perpetrated by white society, but don't speak to how this impacts Black women when perpetrated by the Black community. In line with gendered racism, gendered racial microaggressions are described as everyday, subtle expressions or behaviors that oppress those living at the intersection of Blackness and womanhood, shown in Lewis et al. 2012. Racial microaggressions were first coined and developed by Chester Pierce and further developed by Daryl Wingsu. Microaggressions are broadly understood to be covert discriminatory acts, whereas historically, it was more acceptable to use slurs to describe minority groups or bar them from certain events and establishments. These have been replaced by other other tactics, such as microaggressions, where it's harder to prove the racial, sexist, ableist, or other oppressive undertones. For Black women, a gendered racial microaggression may look like what Lewis and Neville in 2015 described as being silenced and marginalized. This could include instances of feeling that others second-guess your opinion because you are a Black woman and are therefore viewed as less intelligent. Although Black Black women face many of the same difficulties Black men face, when discussing Black community issues, Black women's concerns can be pushed to the margins and we're told to wait until we tackle the more universal threat of racism. And this is shown in Belgrave and Alice in 2018, as cited in Gomez and Gobin 2019, and Simeon 2004. To blend these concepts together, I considered, does Black women's gendered racial identity centrality impact their willingness to participate in collective action activities? And does facing microaggressions within these groups, these Black social and political action groups, lead to negative mental health outcomes such as stress? I hypothesize that black women, black women with a higher gendered racial identity centrality will be more likely to engage in collective action activities. I also hypothesize that black women who experience more instances of being silenced and marginalized and labeled as angry black women within black social and political movements will report higher rates of stress symptoms. In order to participate in the study, those interested needed to be 18 years or older and identify as Black women. 
In total, there were 118 participants who responded to the study, but many were not included in analysis for various reasons. 25 were not included because they had extremely low active times or essentially did not complete a majority of the survey data necessary for analysis. Three were excluded because although they completed the survey, they had extremely low active times. 18 were excluded from the second regression due to missing all or most of the data starting from the gendered racial microaggression scale. This left us with a total of 90 participants for the first test and 72 for the second and third. The majority of participants indicated they were between the ages of 18 and 30. 46 of them were in this age range. 19 were between the ages of 31 and 50. 23 were between the ages of 51 and 70. And two indicated they were between the ages of 71 and 90. 91.1% of participants indicated their race as Black or African American and 8.9 recorded they were biracial, multiracial, or others, with responses such as Black slash African American and, and Asian American, Black, Latina, and White, and Native Hawaiian, Pacific Islander, and Black or African American. In terms of ethnicity, participants were 9.9% African or of direct African descent, 2.2% identified as being Caribbean or direct Caribbean descent, and 75.4% indicated being Black or African-American. 1.1% indicated their ethnicity as African-American and an additional unidentified ethnicity, and 11.1% did not indicate their ethnicity at all. Half of the participants indicated they were undergraduate students. Almost a third indicated they were non-students or working professionals. 12.2% indicated they were graduate students and 4.4 indicated other, which mostly included those who were retired. 1.1% did not answer this question. Majority of our participants were not currently involved in Black sociopolitical groups, such as NABJ, NAACP, or Black sororities, and 40% indicated they were involved in these groups. To assess participants' gendered racial identity, I used a revised version of the centrality subscale in the multidimensional model of Black identity. This scale was created by Sellers et al. in 1997 to assess three aspects of racial identity, centrality, regard, and ideology. In this, in this study, subscale items were revised to state Black women or women instead of Black people, and we measured people's responses on a five-point Likert scale with one being strongly disagree and five being strongly agree. An example item from this subscale includes, in general, being a black woman is an important part of my self-image. A higher score indicates a person who holds their identity as a black woman as significant to who they are. With the current sample, the Cronbach's alpha for the multidimensional model of black identity centrality subscale was 0.788. To gauge participants' willingness to participate in different community activism activities, I used the Black Community Activism Orientation Scale, developed by Hope et al. in 2019. This was created to assess, as the authors put it, orientation toward activism that promotes racial justice, resists racial oppression, and supports improved sociopolitical conditions in Black communities in the United States. This scale was also measured on a five-point Likert scale, with one indicating extremely unlikely 
and five indicating extremely likely. The scale is also broken up into three separate subscales to assess participants' willingness to engage in low-risk activism, high-risk activism, and formal political activism. An example item from the low-risk activism subscale included wear a t-shirt or button with a political message about the Black community. From the high-risk activism subscale, engage in a political activity specific to the Black community in which you suspect there would be a confrontation with the police or possible arrest. And from the formal political activism subscale, donate money to a political candidate who supports Black issues. Rather than score these scales separately, the scales were scored together to assess for overall willingness to engage in activism. A higher score indicated that the participant was more oriented towards engaging in community activism related to Black issues. The Cronbach's alpha for this scale was 0.945. For the second research question, to assess participants' experiences of gendered racial microaggressions, the gendered racial microaggression scale was used. This scale was developed by Lewis and Neville in 2015 to assess both the frequency of the gendered racial microaggressions Black men faced and their appraisal of how stressful these events were to them. The scale comprises of four different subscales. One, assumptions of beauty and sexual objectification. Two, silenced and marginalized. Three, strong Black women. And four, angry Black women. For this study, the silenced and marginalized and the angry Black women subscales were used in analysis as they best fit the research question. I also did not utilize data from the appraisal of each microaggression because I used another scale to measure how stressful these events were. This scale was measured on a six-point Likert scale, with zero indicating never, as in this experience has never happened to me, and five indicating once or more times a week. An example item from the silenced and marginalized subscale is my comments have been ignored in a discussion in a work, school, or other professional setting. And an example from the angry black woman subscale is in talking with others, someone has told me to calm down. A higher score on either of the subscales indicates a higher frequency of experiencing that type of microaggression. The Cronbach's alpha for the silenced and marginalized and angry black women subscales were 0.865 and 0.85 respectively. Finally, I used the depression, anxiety, and stress scale to measure participant stress related to being microaggressed against. This scale was developed by Lovey Bond and Lovey Bond in 1995 to measure three components of psychological distress, being depression, anxiety, and stress over the past week. For this study, only the stress subscale was used in analysis because we felt it captured what we were trying to test the best. And initially, we had three different scales or subscales that measured stress in some form. This scale was scored using a four-point Likert scale, where zero indicated the listed symptom did not apply at all, and three indicated that it applied very much or most of the time. An example item from the stress subscale included, I found it hard to wind down. A higher score for this subscale indicates a higher endorsement of stress symptoms. The Cronbach's alpha for this stress subscale was 0.881. To test my hypotheses, I used three simple regressions, one for the first question and two for the second question. With a simple regression, we use a single independent or manipulated variable and one dependent variable. 
For the first hypothesis, Black women's endorsement of identity centrality is the independent variable, and their willingness to participate in Black community activism is the dependent variable. For the second hypothesis, one of the independent variables was the Black women's experiences of being silenced and marginalized within Black community activism spaces, and the, the, and the dependent variable was their endorsement of stress symptoms due to these experiences. The other independent variable was Black women's experiences of being labeled or treated as an angry Black woman, and the dependent variable was their endorsement of stress symptoms. In addition to this, correlations were run between each independent variable and the corresponding dependent variable to ensure the variables correlated to each other, and reliability tests to make sure participants' results would be duplicated, duplicated if the survey measures were given under the same conditions. The results of the correlation test found a positive moderate relationship between Black women's identity centrality and their willingness to participate in Black community activism, with an R of 0.443 and a significance level of 0 0.00. Between Black women's experiences being silenced and marginalized and their endorsement of stress symptoms, there was an R of 0.548 and a significance level of 0 0.00. And between Black women's experiences of being labeled or treated as angry Black women and their endorsement of stress symptoms, there was an R of 0.388 with a significance level of 0 0.0. After running reliability tests, there was a strong reliability for all of the scales. Finally, I ran the three regressions. The first regression showed that 19.6% of the variance in scores on the Black Community Activism Orientation Scale were due to scores on the multi-dimensional model of Black identity centrality subscale. Participant scores on the Black community activism orientation scales increased by 0.452 for every one unit of change in their gendered racial centrality score. This means that Black women with a higher gendered racial identity centrality are more willing to engage in Black community activism activities. The second regression showed that 30.1% of the variance in stress scores were due to the frequency scores on the silence and marginalized subscale. Stress subscores increased by 4.792 for every one unit of change on the silence and marginalized subscale. So as Black women report more instances of experienced silencing and marginalizing microaggression, their endorsement of stress symptoms increased. Finally, 15.1% of the variance in scores on the stress subscale were due to scores on the angry black women subscale. For every one unit of change in participants' angry black women scores, their stress score increased by 2.891. So again, as black women report greater instances of being characterized as angry black women, they endorse higher stress. Supported by other studies, black women who held being a black woman a central as a central part of who they are, indicated they would be more likely to engage in community activism. And as evidenced by previous research, Black women's experiences with gendered racial microaggressions are related to negative mental health outcomes, such as depressive symptoms and traumatic stress. Unfortunately, this appears to also ring true within the Black community activism spaces. A clear limitation of this study is the lack of a large sample size. Though we met the appropriate number of participants for, for statistical power, meaning we had enough participants for the, those regressions that I ran to mean 
something is difficult to make these results truly generalizable to the population at large because of low participation. This also impacted the analysis as we were unable to use the same number of participants for each regression. A majority of participants also indicated they were between the ages of 18 and 30, and half indicated they were undergraduate students. So again, the results are more generalizable to those populations. I also wondered if using the gendered racial microaggression scale was the best scale to use because it measures microaggressions in the context of white spaces and made by white people. Though a reminder was given before the scale to consider these in instances in the context of civic engagement activities, it is possible that participants forgot or did not read this reminder, which would impact the way they answered the survey. Future research should, of course, focus on getting a more robust sample to allow for greater generalizability. Researchers should also investigate how Black women handle these kinds of discriminatory experiences and view whether their coping strategies differ between intra-community discrimination and discrimination from non-Black people. This would further help psychologists develop tools and techniques to assist Black women in taking care of themselves after these instances. Finally, I believe it would be interesting to investigate whether there are different forms of microaggressions Black women face in the company of other Black people. Though the gendered racial microaggression scale is an amazing scale that describes the experiences Black women have within white spaces fairly well, it is possible that the microaggressions we face amongst other Black people may sound or look differently and are not fully captured in the current scale. So what exactly does all of this mean for psychological and community practice? As mentioned before, one way people may alleviate distress due to facing discrimination in everyday life is by engaging in community activism. Essentially, tapping into Black women's sense of self may help them to engage more in civic activities for the betterment of Black people. While in these spaces, though, it is important that Black women are seen and the oppression they face is taken seriously. Practitioners working with Black clients who may view Black women as angry Black women or who silence and marginalize Black women should help their clients work on these views to help reduce the negative psychological distress associated with experiencing these forms of oppression. As evidenced by some of the responses to the free response question included in the survey, Black women building community with each other may be a potential avenue to cope with and decompress from microaggressions perpetrated within the Black community. This research also lets community activists know that Black women are ready and willing to put in the effort needed to help make changes for the Black community, but their voices need to be heard and cannot continue to be silenced by views of inadequacy or being viewed as overly emotional. I wanted to provide some tips or insight that I felt could help other students who are new to research conduct a much smoother study. I am, of course, still a novice when it comes to research and therefore I'm still learning how to hone my craft. While going through the process of analyzing the data I collected, I truly started thinking about the different things I could have done better. So this is just a small, in my definition, list of things I considered, and just a note that this is not exhaustive. You'll want to compile a good list of groups, organizations, schools, and majors you want to target so that sending recruitment messages goes smoothly and you can easily clarify questions. I found myself emailing new organizations and departments two weeks before my study closed. At that point, I could have been sending out reminder emails instead. 
Be more transparent if possible when you have a larger survey. Disclose as early in the informed consent document because we know that people don't read those fully. So if you can, tell them within the first half of the consent form. Begin looking for scales of interest early. Check for validity, whether you need permission to use them, if they include scoring instructions, do they fit with your research question, or is it possible another scale matches better? Try to make the design of the survey easy. Make sure participants can see the question and possible answers at all times. Of course, this may depend more on what your department is most comfortable using in terms of survey software or has free membership with, but I had different participants I knew personally disclose that for some of the questions, it was hard to remember what scale they were measuring their responses on because it did not line up directly underneath the reference provided or they had to scroll up a little to see the scale again. If you are using items or subscales from a larger scale that aren't specific to this research question but you think would be good to just select and it's possible to change the order of items, put the items most relevant to your questions first. So many people ended up dropping out after my second scale, and this could largely be due to the number of questions being asked. For some of the scales, there were explicit instructions from the authors not to alter them, but if possible for many of the other ones, I should have moved them up, so I at least had good participation for those specific research questions. For the statistically challenged, such as myself, if you are able, reach out to statistical experts. There may be some on your campus. By the time I closed my survey and realized cleaning data simply would not be as easy as I hoped it would, it was too late to my deadlines to try to reach out to research design and analysis teams at my university to ask for help. Luckily, I was able to get everything done due to my wonderful advisor, but I likely could have gotten even more done a lot sooner with the resources I hear they provide. Finally, make sure you have the scoring instructions prior to analysis so you can have a seamless process. Somehow, I forgot to check if the scores I found included scoring instructions. While I was able to find some through the internet or my advisor, I had to email a researcher about one particular scale, only to receive an automatic email that they were on leave. Thankfully, after a little persistence, they did respond to me. But I could have avoided so much stress if I'd just gotten all this information when I first decided on the scales and went through the process of asking for a permission. I want to say thank you to everyone who made this podcast possible and helped me do this research. Thank you to the participants. Without you, there would be no data. Thank you to Dr. Williams. And thank you to everyone who's allowed me to use their scales and has helped me along the way. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and learning a little bit more about Black women's experiences within civic engagement and their mental health. I look forward to sharing more research with you in the future.